Thank you, choir. Peter Margaret, thank you so much for coming all the way from down under from New Zealand and uh, just ministering to us over the last two weeks. And it's been a blessing to have you share with us your hearts and teach us about marriage so much. And uh, God's really used you. And so this morning, this is the fourth of a series of talks that Peter and Margaret have both done. And Peter's going to close us out with a sermon on marriage. And so thank you, brother. Thank you for coming. Good morning. <clears throat> well, it's been a wonderful time that Margaret and I have had here at First Presbyterian Dothan. Your friendship and your welcome has indeed been heartwarming. And uh, we, uh, we went away to the beach for a few days last week. And as we're ready to come back, we found ourselves saying, almost without realising it, well, it's time to go back home, meaning Dothan. <laughs> Meaning first prayers, so it has been a lovely time. As Rusty said, we've had a, a marriage seminar these last few days, and uh, we've talked about the biblical foundations of marriage, and we've talked about uh, conflict resolution, and we've talked about communication in marriage, we've talked about the three big marriage breakers, and we have... Uh, attempted to answer questions. And uh, Margaret and I have done this seminar a number of times, but we, uh, we are agreed, the purpose of marriage is to agree, we are agreed that this is uh, indeed the most blessed time that we've had talking about marriage. Uh, tomorrow morning we leave for St. Louis, where we will be visiting with friends for about three weeks, and then we fly back home uh, to New Zealand. So we'll take some wonderful memories with us from our time with you here. Well, this morning we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, <clears throat> and uh, I'm just, <clears throat> just going to read that passage to you, beginning in verse, 20, uh, verse 21. I've entitled the message this morning, A Marriage That Works. A Marriage That Works. Ephesians 5, uh, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. As we come to this subject this morning, I am aware that there are some here who are not married in the congregation. It may be that you are too young to be married. It may be that you are old enough, but you are still unmarried. Or perhaps you have been married, but are now separated from your spouse by either death or divorce. Yet this sermon can still be for you. It will either prepare you for marriage or it will encourage you to think hard about how to encourage those married couples that are a part of your life. Well, I've called our remarks this morning a marriage that works and the reason I've done that is because there are so many marriages today that don't work. In New Zealand, the separation rate is around 50% of both marriages and couples living together without marriage. And certainly, many are convinced that a biblically defined marriage, as we have here in Ephesians 5, just doesn't work. Maybe there's been times in your married life where you have wondered if, in fact, God's prescription of marriage just doesn't work in our day and age or in your particular marriage relationship. Do marriages really work today, given all the pressures and temptations that crowd in upon us? What hope can we pass on to our young people that Christian marriage does indeed work? Well, the two ways that we can pass that on to them is by example. We can, through our own marriages, provide examples and role models of how to have a marriage that works, how to have a marriage in which conflict is welcomed and embraced and dealt with and resolved in order to strengthen the marriage and to deal with sin in our hearts and to bring Christ front and center into our relationship. Another way we can pass it on to our children is by reminding them that Christian marriage is distinct from marriage in general. And the most powerful way in which it is distinct is that Christian marriage is a day-by-day lived-out drama of Christ's relationship with the church that cannot be said of non-Christian marriage. Christian marriage is distinctive. So as we think about our relationship with our spouse, we must be thinking of a distinctive relationship different from the relationship our non-Christian friends have in their marriages. There's great hope for Christian marriage because Christ is at the center of our relationship, and having made a lifetime commitment to Jesus Christ, it's not unreasonable that we can make a lifetime commitment to our spouse in marriage before the face of God. Well, that brings us to our passage this morning, Ephesians 5. Here we have instruction for Christian marriage. Ephesians 5 is not instruction for marriage in general. It's specifically instruction for Christian marriage. 
non-Christian marriages need the gospel before they come to Ephesians 5. Non-Christian marriages need Ephesians 1 before they need Ephesians 5. For instance, in Ephesians 1, chapter 13, uh, sorry, Ephesians 1, verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And if that is true of you and I, my friends, if 1.13 is true of us, then we are ready for Ephesians 5. But if, that if, but if that is not true of us, if we have not believed on the gospel that we have heard, that word of truth, and we have not been marked in him with the seal of the Holy Spirit, having believed we have been sealed, if that's not true of us, then there is no better time than right now to say in our hearts to Jesus Christ, I am sorry. I am sorry for the sins that I have committed. I'm sorry for the ways that I've ignored you and rebelled against you. Thank you that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for my sin. His blood is sufficient to cover my sin. Please forgive my sins today and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Sorry, thank you, please. STP. Sorry, thank you, please. Put that on your fridge. So in the morning, when you go to get the milk for your cereal, you're reminded that today is an STP day. A day in which I'm sorry for my sin. A day in which I'm thankful that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. And a day in which I'm confessing and asking him to forgive me. Now that, my friends, is a distinctive way of living. Your non-Christian friend next door won't be doing that when he gets his milk for his cereal. You see, that's a distinctive way of living, and now we are for a distinctive Ephesians 5 marriage. Because a marriage that works springs out of a gospel that works. Works in our hearts every day. Well, in these verses, there are three verses of instructions to wives. And there are eight verses of instructions to husbands. Kind of gets the perspective where it should be, doesn't it? But more important than the verse count is the verse content. So we shall go there. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands, for the husband is the head of the wife. Paul doesn't waste any time. He jumps right in. Submission and headship. There it is in verse 22. And it's at this point we realize that this is why these verses can only be for Christian marriages. If you sat down with your non-Christian friend and said, let's look at what the Bible says about marriage, and you go to Ephesians 5.22, they'd probably no longer be your friend. Non-Christian marriages won't get past verse 22. That will be the great stumbling block. That will be the great barrier. Submission and headship in the 21st century? You've got to be kidding. Besides, the guy who wrote these verses never married. What would he know? See, that's the way the non-Christians reason, don't they? Well, I'm going to say a few words about headship and a few words about submission, so uh, bear with me. 
First of all, headship. God does not burden wives and mothers with the ultimate responsibility for the care of the family. The husbands and fathers have that. It's called headship. Headship means that we have the ultimate responsibility before God for the care of the family. God has given husbands this role to ensure the stability and survival of the marriage and the family. Theirs is the ultimate responsibility. And when things go wrong in the marriage, when we're stuck in chronic conflict that can never seem to be resolved, when we seem to be caught up constantly and overwhelmed with disappointments that the marriage is not going the way we long for it to go, when there's difficulties in the marriage, God comes to the husband and he says to the husband, where are you, Peter? That's me. Where are you, Peter? Where are you hiding? I see that tree. Where are you hiding, son of Adam? Where are you hiding your headship? Well, we hide our headship, don't we, as men? We hide our headship behind anger, self-righteousness, pride, passivity, work, sport, Hobbies, Netflix, exercise, drinking, pornography, humor, endless storytelling, our wives' faults, etc., etc. The list is endless. We are very creative at finding reasons to hide our headship. So we must come out from wherever we are hiding. And as we come out from our hiding place, As soon as we do that, we're now facing full-on the reality of our difficult marriage, the reality of what is happening in our marriage. And then we have a choice, you see. We come out of the hiding place, we face it full-on, and either we go back to our hiding place or we take a step towards whatever's going on in our marriage with our wives. Now, that step towards is what marks you out as a godly man embracing your headship. That one step. You step towards the marriage rather than stepping back and sideways to hide. So when God says, come on out from your hiding place, he is calling us as men to step forward, to move forward, to move with gentle strength towards our wives. Gentle strength in order to encourage and to bless and to serve self-sacrificially. It's terrifying, isn't it? That step forward. It's terrifying. But ours, you see, as heads, is the responsibility to initiate, to move, to act on behalf of our wives, not hide and shrink back. And you see, men, this headship imitates Jesus Christ who is our head. And uh, Ephesians 5 tells us that we should be just like Christ in the exercise of our headship. Now, when God called on Jesus to move on behalf of his bride, us, the church, Jesus didn't step back and hide. (laughs) The idea is ridiculous, isn't it? Almost blasphemous. Jesus stepped forward in order to be the ultimate sacrifice 
in order to win his bride, ransom his bride by his blood. Now, we are not called to be our wives' saviors, but we are called to imitate Christ and move towards, step towards the one who needs our headship, needs our movement, needs our gentle strength in their lives, just as Jesus moves towards us. So we move towards her. Just as the church has been given to Christ by the Father, so our wives have been given to us that we might move on their behalf. So we move not as one who demands with authority, but we move as one who rather invites our wife's involvement with self-sacrifice. There is no chain of command in these verses that talk about headship in the marriage. Headship in the marriage is to be associated with self-sacrificial service, not with chain of command authority. That's absent here in these verses. Certainly, the idea of headship involves authority. Certainly in the church, men who have the headship have the authoritative rule in the church. And in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul spells that out in great detail. But here, when he's talking about marriage and headship and marriage, it's all about self-sacrificial service on behalf of the other. Well, let's move on to submission. If the husband as head is to move then the wife in submission is to receive or to embrace or to welcome and respect his movement as head. She's not to compete with it. She's not to reject it. She's not to dutifully accept it with a resentful heart. Rather, receive his movement with joy. And that way, you see, you reflect the church as the bride of Christ. The church joyfully receives any and every movement her head Christ makes on her behalf. So from verses 22 to 24, how do wives receive their husband's headship? Well, <clears throat> wives submit to your husbands as, uh, as to the Lord. Your submission is only in the Lord. That qualifies your submission to your husbands. It's only in the Lord. It's not required when his movements is contrary to God's commands. Your submission is not required when he is acting sinfully and requiring you to act sinfully. It's in the Lord, you see. It's submission that honors Christ, who is your first love. Notice in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. The submission is only to your husband. It's not to other husbands, nor is it to men generally. That helps, doesn't it? It's different, uh, it's different from the submission in verse 21. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The submission that's called for in verse 22 is different from the submission in verse 21. And the difference is that only in verse 22 is there a head. There is a head to which submission must be given. Whereas in verse 21, there is no headship. It's just the general love and reverence 
and honour in which we hold our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, you see, Christian women can move into their world with grace and confidence, accepting leadership responsibilities in line with their gifting, while still being in submission to their husbands. As the bride... As the church, the bride of Christ, submits to Christ, it's the same attitude. You see that in verse 24? As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. He is not Christ, he is not your saviour, but your attitude to receive his movement is reflective of your attitude to Christ, who is your saviour and Lord. It's a willingness to look forward for opportunities to receive his movement towards you. Now, bear in mind, wives, that the husband's default position is to hide. That's his default position as a son of Adam. It's to hide. What you're longing for is his movement towards you, his loving, gentle strength movement towards you. It's what you long for. So as you uh, live with this man as his wife, then you are... Before God, doing all you can to coax him out of his hiding place (laughs) and to invite him to step forward. And you are going to courage and honor any little vestige of movement in that direction. Yes! Keep it up, husband. That's fantastic. It says at the end of verse 24, uh, in everything... Well, that in everything has to be qualified in verse 22. Only in the Lord or as the Lord, as to the Lord, because sometimes he moves in sinful ways. We made a note in the marriage seminar about this word helper. And uh, when my children were very little, they would ask me to help them with their homework. And the littler they were, the easier it was to help them. But why was I a suitable helper for my children with their homework? Because I knew more than they did. So I was able to be a suitable helper. You see, we need to insist on our wife's counsel. So you might ask your wife sometime, what's it like to have me as a husband? (laughs) I see the shudder go through the church. You see, and, and, and what happens is that you're, you're, you're engaging in a conversation now in which you are encouraging him to move out of his hiding place and to step towards you. Because you know better than he does often when he's hiding. And uh, you certainly know the movement that thrills your heart. And you need to let him know that. Well... Let's move on to husbands in 25 to 32. How do husbands initiate their headship towards their wives? Verse 25, just as Christ, you imitate Christ. Christ actively pursues in love the one he has chosen. Four times in these verses, husbands are told to love their wives. Love their wives exclusively. Love their wives as the the pursuit of, that their whole life is given over to, pursuing their wives in love, pursuing her heart, 
seeking to understand her in the depth of the mystery that is a woman's heart. It's a lifelong quest. It's a lifelong pursuit. And you have chosen her in love for this very mission. It's a headship of love and sacrifice. Well, husbands, think about the way Christ loves his bride, the church. He does not back away. He does not hide. Rather, he moves towards her and sets his love upon her. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted. True love always chooses. True love always chooses. Now, a young man, a Christian man in the church who's thinking about getting married, uh, looks around the, uh, the young women in the church who are Christians, and before God and in the scriptures, he could marry any one of them. If they love Jesus, then they're eligible. And if they're single, they're eligible. But out of all the ones he could, he has to choose one. He's only allowed to choose one. And so which one will he choose? Well, he will choose the one that he loves. He will choose the one that he's falling in love with. And as he chooses her, he sets his love upon her and makes promises to her. Isn't that exactly what Jesus does with us? He pursues us in love. He sets his love upon us and he chooses us. And why does he choose us? Because true love always chooses. If Margaret and I were sitting down to Sunday lunch one Sunday and after a kind of a, a moment serious reflection on my part, uh, which kind of heralds something profound about to be said, I, and, and I said to her, I've come to a decision. Darling, I've come to a decision. I've decided I'm just going to love all my Christian sisters the same way, including yourself. Nothing special. Just love them all as the scriptures command me. Love them in Christ, with purity. What do you think Margaret's response might be? She might say something like, what about me? What about me? Because, you see, true love always chooses. I thought you had chosen me as being the one, as being special from all others. You see, true love always pursues the one that has been chosen. When we're hiding, we're not pursuing, you see. When we're hiding, we are, we are denying our wives and, and, and stealing from our wives the pursuit that true love demands. Jesus loves us with an electing love, a love limited to the ones chosen. You can no more forsake your wife than Christ could forsake his church. Just as God has chosen you, so you choose this one and you continue to choose this one. In the midst of all of life's pressures and temptations, you continue in your heart to make that commitment, to make that choice, to pursue this one and this one only, to the exclusion of all others. 
That's reflective of God's electing love as we continue to pursue our wives in marriage like Christ continues to pursue us. Support, protect, provide security, self-sacrificial service, headship on behalf of another. See in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. It's a constant giving up. The giving up never stops. The giving up never stops. It's a constant giving up. It's a lifetime of giving up. When you choose this one and you set your love upon this one and you make promises to this one, you're making a promise that for the rest of my life I will constantly be giving up on your behalf. Let me read 25 again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. (laughs) They're his words, friends, not mine. A lifetime of giving up. That's headship. Love her in a way that moves her towards Christ. You see that in verse 26. Love her in a way that moves her towards Christ. Now, we're not responsible for her spiritual growth, but we are responsible to facilitate her spiritual growth. Let nothing stand in the way of her spiritual growth, her relationship with Jesus. If she wants to attend church every Sunday, you do that with joy and accompany her. If she wants to uh, do daily Bible and prayer together with you, then you will do everything you can. Washing her with the water of the word. If she needs time alone during the day to be with her Lord in morning devotion, you will do everything you can to enable that to happen. If she wants to attend a midweek small group meeting, you will do everything you can to enable that to happen. You will forsake any barriers of attitude, anger or impatience at her desire to advance her relationship with Jesus Christ. We delight and honour and cherish and nurture like Christ does his bride. You are the lover and she is the beloved like Christ with his bride. We rejoice over her with singing like Christ rejoices over his bride. To spend the rest of your life understanding her as God's gift to you. In 28 and 33... We have this uh, comment here that we are to love our wives as our own bodies. That's repeated twice, 28 and 33. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean a self-centered vanity. But rather to love them as being part of our own bodies, as being a part of us, as being as close to us as it's possible for anyone to be. Just like Adam saw in, verse, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, when God brought Eve to him, he acknowledged that she was bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You see, what he was doing was saying, you are a part of me, and I will love you because you are a part of me. I will love you exclusively because you are a part of me. No other woman in this world is a part of me, only my wife. <laughs> you see? So I love her as one who is part of me. That's reflecting the spiritual union that Christ has with his church. So when, when God brought 
us to Christ, Jesus said, all that the Father has given me, I have received. And when Jesus looks at us, he sees bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You are united to me. You are as close to me as anything could possibly be in all of my creation. You are marked out as distinctive and special. Upon you have I set my love. You are a part of me and I am a part of you. We are bone of bone, flesh of flesh. Verse 30, we are members of his body. She, like you, is a member of Christ's body and together you are one. Think of it like a triangle, like this, you see? And the husband and the wife are at each uh, bottom corner of the triangle and Jesus Christ is at the top of the triangle and as each one of you are moving closer to Jesus Christ in your own personal devotional life and your walk with him, you see what's happening? You're moving closer and closer to one another. It's that spiritual union, you see, we have with Jesus. But if Jesus is not on the triangle, you're both stuck down here on the bottom just kind of banging away like this, you see, with nowhere to go. No way forward. Only shadows in the road. Verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. For this reason. What is the reason that you will leave your family of origin and be committed to this one? Movement for the sake of another to imitate Christ. To become one. No room here for sexual union with a third party. This is separation from the family of origin. This is, uh, you know, when we, when we asked the, this, this beautiful creature to marry us, we took a step forward and took perhaps the greatest risk of our lives and said, I love you, will you marry me? And we waited for the answer. You see, by, by this time, the relationship might have developed to where you knew what the answer was. But with, the, with, with that stepping forward, in, you see, you're stepping forward, a step towards her is a step away from your family of origin, and as you step towards her and you say, will you marry me, you are inviting her to make her step away from her family of origin and join you here as a new family unit so that your family of origin stands beside your marriage but not in your marriage. One plus one equals a whole, a whole family unit. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This spiritual union we have with Jesus in the gospel, its depth and extent and power and blessing is a mystery that is clarified and, and illustrated in the marriage bond so that people looking at our marriage should be able to say, so that's what union with Christ looks like. That's how Christ loves his church. That's how the church responds to Christ. So verse 33. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Each one, each husband, no exception here. His wife, her husband, exclusive and continuous. Husbands move with love and wives Receive with respect. So, in the light of all of this, very quickly summing up, 
by way of application, here's a question for husbands. Does my love for my wife illustrate and reflect Christ's active love and care for the church? Does my love for my wife cause me to initiate self-sacrificing movement towards her? Here's a question for wives. Does my respect for my husband illustrate and reflect the church's desire to gladly embrace the love of Christ? Does my respect for my husband cause me to receive his movement on my behalf? What about when Christian couples can't agree? What should the wife do in a situation where they just can't be agreed over an issue? Well, wives, if you receive and embrace this determined purpose within God's revealed will, and it turns out to be a wise decision, you'll both be blessed. But if it turns out to be a foolish decision, he will learn and grow as he acknowledges his fault, and you will be blessed for having submitted and received. You can't lose. Either way, you're going to win. So uh, the wife might say something like this. Not because I believe you are wiser in this matter or more righteous, I don't, nor because I accept that you are right, because I don't, but because I am a servant of God who has called me to reflect my love for you by respecting your headship, I willingly yield to your decision. If I am wrong, may God show me. If you are wrong, may he give you the grace to acknowledge it and to change as you seek forgiveness from Christ and from me. What should husbands do when there's an issue on which they can't agree? Husbands should insist on their wife's counsel and listen carefully to what she has to say. Many years ago when I was in seminary, uh, Jay Adams uh, uh, was doing some uh, lectures with us, and uh, <laughs> this is no reflection on Jay Adams, but the only thing I remember him saying was husbands should insist on their wife's counsel. And at that point in our marriage, that's the last thing I was doing. That's, I guess that's what struck me. Isn't that fantastic? Insist on your wife's counsel and listen carefully to what she has to say. If you are sure you must proceed, then do so. If you are subsequently proved to have made a foolish decision or have misjudged the situation, admit and confess and seek forgiveness from your wife and from the Lord. This will draw her to Christ and to the gospel. You see, repenting and acknowledging and seeking forgiveness is actually living out the gospel. It's demonstrating the gospel. And, and it will draw her to Christ and it will draw her to the gospel and strengthen her faith and her willingness to follow you next time. So the husband might say something like this, not because I am inherently wiser or more righteous than you, nor because I am always right, although I do believe I am in this case, but because it's finally my responsibility before God, we will take this course which I believe is right. If I am being sinfully stubborn, may God give me the grace to yield to you and seek Christ's forgiveness and yours. What about in a situation where there is, uh, you are married to an abusive or a non-Christian spouse or a spouse that acts in a non-Christian way? If you're, the hu- if you're the husband in a marriage like that, you should look for opportunities to initiate and move in love toward your wife. If you are the wife in a situation in a marriage like that, you should look for opportunities to receive and respect any good movement from your husband. But in doing that, you should be sure 
that husbands in their moving or wives in their receiving does not require you to displace Christ as primary and first in your affections, does not leave your children or yourself unprotected and in harm's way, does not make you an enabler of your spouse's sinful lifestyle. May the Lord continue to bless us in this most wonderful of human relationships with marriages that work to his glory and to our blessing and that reflect to a watching world the love union of Christ and his bride. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the marriages that you have given us. We ask, Father, that we would recommit ourselves to entering into that lifetime work of pursuing and loving, of receiving and respecting. We thank you, Father, that because Jesus Christ is your greatest gift to us, that even those of us who are not married can in Jesus Christ and in the fullness of his spirit receive all the joy and the grace and the fulfillment that you have for us in this life. We thank you for our time together. We thank you for these scriptures that speak so directly. We thank you that what's most important for us to know is most clearly spoken to us in your word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.